So we're continuing the Gospel of Matthew, and as we uh, continue in Matthew, uh, just want a thought. When I was in university, uh, I went to uh, what's called a liberal arts university, which means no matter what you're studying, you have to take some other subjects around whatever it is you're studying. And one of the subjects we often had to take in the U.S. was literature, U.S. literature, uh, or some kind of literature, Western literature. And oftentimes, you know, you get this book, and for some, some folks, these books that they'd have to read for these classes were pretty dense. They were big, thick books like Moby Dick, which just has a lot of words in it. And uh, so what folks would often do is they'd buy these things called cliff notes. Uh, have you ever, how many of you ever heard of cliff notes? Just to know how much I need to explain this. So what cliff notes are, they're actually a published uh, kind of like little magazine. They're always yellow. And basically what they are is it's the, the summary of the book that you would have to read. So you go to the bookstore and you have the book, say, you know, The Tale of Two Cities or, or Moby Dick or some big, thick book. And then you have this little cliff notes. It was right by it. You could also purchase. And when you purchase those, let's see if this works. Uh, you would get the, you'd get the summary of each chapter. You'd get what they're talking about. But you wouldn't have to deal with things like, you know, plot and character development, and actually kind of enjoying the story. Uh, you could do away with all that and go straight to, the, straight to what you'd have to take the test on. And uh, so some folks used to use these. I never would use them. I kind of preferred, if I was going to go down, I wanted to go down with dignity. And, uh, and just, uh, I wouldn't read the, the cliff notes and just nuke the test. But actually, reading was something I was fairly good at, so that wasn't as big a problem for me. But anyway, they were there. And you'll see why I'm talking about that later. So if we can go to the next slide there. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking at some of the questions that the Pharisees were asking Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were asking Jesus. And if you remember as we were talking about this, they were doing it to try and trip him up to see if they can get him into trouble, uh, either with the people or with the authorities, preferably both. And so they were asking him a series of questions after he'd come in uh, on the riding on the donkey as the, as the Messiah into Jerusalem. And if you remember, the Pharisees asked him a political question dealing with taxes. The Sadducees asked him a question which is a little bit more theological, dealing with the resurrection. And after Jesus gave them answers which neither one of them expected, uh, they kind of went back and regrouped. And then the Pharisees came and they asked Jesus another question. And this is in Matthew 22, 34 through... Uh, we'll eventually get through 46, but 32... Uh, Actually, we're just going to go through 40. Uh, it says this. That Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, we've talked about this quite a bit over the, the time you know, I've been here, and if you've been at IBCD for any amount of time, these, this verse, along with the one that, that kind of complements now the Gospel of John, are ones that I often mention, and I'll do that again today. But basically what Jesus is saying here is that, you know, the whole law can be summed up in these two verses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbors yourself. It is, in a sense, kind of the Cliff Notes version of the law. Go to the next slide, please. And the whole summary of the law and the prophets can be found in these, in these notes. 
Can you go to the next slide? There you go. Then Jesus even says so. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And the idea that the law can be summed up in basically we're to live unselfish lives is reflected later in the letters of the Apostle Paul quite often. But here's an example out of Galatians. He says this in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. This is an interesting concept in Christianity which is often overlooked. That in Christ we have freedom because we are under the umbrella of God's grace. And Paul says something very kind of provocative when he says all things are, be- are permissible because we are under the grace of God. But not all things are beneficial. And he kind of says the same thing here. He says, you are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in the single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature is what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. And Paul famously in the, in the book of Romans goes off on this idea because he mentions this more than once and he starts to spin this thing where I do what I don't want to do, the things that I want to do, those are the very things I don't do, and he starts to kind of chase his tail with this. But what he's expressing here is a concept which I think a lot of Christians don't really get a grasp on, is that as Christians, we have the ability to cooperate both with sin, that's what it means when it talks about our sinful nature or our flesh, And we have the ability to cooperate with God. We have the ability to cooperate with God through the presence of His Spirit in our lives. So as Christians, we have this incredible ability to live lives that are extremely noble, extremely uh, righteous, focused on God. Or as Christians, we can still focus on the things of sin. We can still focus on the things of the flesh. And this becomes our struggle. This is why it's difficult sometimes to to walk in the place that you want to walk in as a Christian. And very often, some of the things that I hear back from people as they're struggling in their their spiritual lives is they can't understand why they seem to go back to certain sins over and over again. They go back to certain habits over and over again. And and they very often will ask me, am I even saved? They'll ask me this, am I even saved if I go back and I struggle with these sins? And, you know, I tell them, one of the things I tell folks, and I do mean this, is like, the struggle is a sign of life. If you didn't have any struggle, if you didn't have any problem with the sin in your life, you're just like, yep, there it is, or you didn't even think about it, didn't even cross your mind that this was even sinful, then that would be a sign that you're not saved. The fact that there's a struggle is a sign that there's a spirit within you that does not want to go down this road. There's a spirit within you that recognizes that this is wrong, and the struggle is a sign of life, but you shouldn't use that as an excuse then to just keep giving into it and say, well, I guess I'm saved because I have this struggle, but I'm not going to worry about it because I'm under grace. You know, it, the Christian life is not uh, a, a simplistic life. It's a complex life because we have a unique ability to cooperate with God and with sin. And so basically what, what, this, what this passage is, is summing up here, especially in verses 16 and 17, you know, where it says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. Basically, it's this warning of be mindful of who and what you are cooperating with. 
And we have all kinds of opportunity to cooperate with sin. We don't really have as much. The world doesn't just present to us a lot of opportunity to cooperate with God. But if you're walking in a relationship with him, those opportunities certainly come. And this is because we're living under the grace of God. And Jesus, and later Paul expands on this idea. They say, basically, if we were really to love God with all our hearts, with all our, our minds, all our soul, there's another place. I think Jesus said this more than once, so that's why you also have the one that says, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And this is one of those things that Jesus probably said quite often as he was traveling around. If we were to love God like that, and we were to love our neighbor truly as ourselves in the sense of being unselfish, then we wouldn't need a law. You wouldn't need laws telling us how to live. We wouldn't need laws telling us how not to uh, exploit other people. We wouldn't need a law telling us to you know, worship the Lord your God only and not worship idols. We wouldn't need that because we'd be living in a place of pure righteousness with God. And it's interesting if you read this, it's clear that Jesus and Paul aren't that hung up about the dietary law or the laws of what you should wear or even how one should express the Sabbath. Again, uh, Paul talks about the fact that, you know, one day is holy for another, the other this day is holy. The important thing is in all that you do, you should do it with a clear conscience before God and with a sense of righteousness before God. They're not really hung up on those things. They're, they're much more about the relationship. And so he continues to talk about that. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. So you don't, have to, you don't have to be a detective to figure out what are the acts of the sinful nature. Sexual immorality, which in our particular society, thanks to the internet, has become much more widespread throughout the church and throughout the world. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So, basically, Paul is saying if we just lived unselfishly, had our priorities being on the love for God for one another, there'd be no problems in the world. We would be living in a place of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the problem is, unless what I've already said, unless you have the Holy Spirit, living like this is impossible. You need the Holy Spirit to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And this comes back to this place. People without the Holy Spirit, they cannot help but sin. And some of you are still in that place, maybe. Some of you maybe not saved. You're here, you're kind of looking around, you're trying to figure out where is the power in Christ, and you're struggling a little bit because you still find yourself indulging in those places of sin. On your own strength, you can push away from those for a little while, but eventually they come back. And what we have in the world today is you have huge populations of people that help, cannot help but cooperate with the sinful nature. And it explains Kind of where you see the world today. You see the world today is if you've got war looming in the east, we have war looming in, a, in, the, in the Pacific, you have incredible self-indulgence being displayed. You know, just last week in the news, 
there's a yacht that's being built in Rotterdam, I believe. Did you see this in the news? It's a yacht that's being built by Jeff Bezos, and he's the guy that owns Amazon. He's, using, he's building it to replace his little yacht, his little 580-some-foot yacht that has a helicopter pad, swimming pool, and spa on it, you know, too small for him. He's having this one built in Rotterdam, and in order to get the boat into the ocean, it's so tall, so big, they have to dismantle the bridge in order to get it into the ocean. And he's paying for it. They are going to literally dismantle a bridge to get it out of the, the shipyard into the ocean. And of course, probably the same question that is in your mind was on my mind. It wasn't there somewhere else they could have built this thing where they didn't have to dismantle a bridge. But you know what I honestly think? I think that they told him, well, we're going to have to take down a bridge. And he's like, I don't care. I can pay for it. I mean, we live in this world of crazy self-indulgence right now. Just insane. It's like, it's like the, it's a new royalty you know, where there's such a separation between how the haves live and how the have-nots live. I don't think it's going to turn out that great for the royalty, just like it did not back in the day. But we live in this world of just incredible have, have-not. You know, you have part of the population that's dieting in order to lose weight, and you have this huge part of the population that's starving to death. It's crazy. The world is a complete mess. And it's not as though non-believers are incapable of love. It's not as though non-believers are incapable of kindness. I think the church sometimes does a disservice when we kind of regard people who aren't believers as somehow less than human. And I think this is why non-believers oftentimes look at the church and, they, and they, they can feel that. They can feel that from the church, that somehow they're regarded as something lesser. And they don't particularly appreciate that because they'll say, are you telling me that just because I'm not a Christian, I can't love? Are you telling me because I'm not a Christian, I can't be kind? And the answer to that is often seen, and you often see this in their questions of heaven. If you ask someone, are you going to go to heaven or who goes to heaven? Non-believers will often say what? If they believe in a heaven at all. Being good. If I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. Being good is good enough. And what they don't realize is when they say that, they are making themselves the standard of goodness. If you were to ask them, well, then what is good? Are you a good person? Most people would say yes. It's very few, but you run into some go, no, I'm horrible. I'm going straight to hell. But you usually run into people who describe goodness and they describe themselves. It's this level, the bar is kind of where they can leap over it. You know, the level of goodness. Do you do charitable works for other people? If they don't, then that bar comes down. Well, that's not really necessary. But what's necessary is you just don't hurt others as you go through life or whatever. You know, they, they make themselves that point. And it's the same with love and the same with kindness. It's kind of based on how they reckon love and kindness is. They don't really think about what God's reckoning of love is. So in my life, I have a lot of people who are non-Christians who care very much for me. They're very kind to me, but it's because of the relationship we have. The relationship either by blood or the experience we've had as friends. And if I were to go against that, if I were to do something that would make myself in their eyes unlovable, then that relationship would change. And it does. You've been in your families. You've had friendships that just kind of disappeared. You've had people within your families that don't talk to each other. You know, because why? Because somewhere along the way, their definition of love and kindness was broken. And so they no longer express that towards one another. And the sad thing is that even in the church, we run across this. And people oftentimes wonder, why is that? And it's because we have this freedom. We do have the ability to cooperate with selfishness. We do have the ability to cooperate with sin. Don't think that just because you're a Christian, while you are given the 
it is true you're given the status of righteousness because of what Christ has done. It doesn't mean that everything you think or do is righteous. And you run across some people who seem to think that. They seem to think because they're a believer, they're just so close to Jesus that every little thought that goes through their head and pops out of their mouth is straight from God himself. And it's not. And this kind of selfishness, spiritual selfishness, can cause a lot of dissension within the church. And so it says, you know, again, coming back to what Paul writes in Galatians, you were called to be free. You have this freedom. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You can choose. Either you're going to cooperate with sin or you're going to cooperate with the Spirit. You have that freedom. And you're not, and you're not dealing with very often, you're not dealing with issues of salvation when you stumble and fall into a place of sin. But, he's, but, he's, but Paul says, I want you to know you have this freedom. I want you to live in this freedom. I want you to grow in this freedom. But he's frightened. He's concerned. Not frightened, but he's concerned that the church is going to take it and end up abusing it because he had seen it happen. Some of the churches that Paul himself planted despised Paul because he kept telling them, listen, you have freedom in Christ, but the way you're using your freedom is abusive. The way you're using your freedom isn't glorifying God. And the church he had the most trouble with was the church in Corinth. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you see in there a relationship that is fractured, and it's going back and forth. And Paul's trying to tell them, listen, you think you look spiritual when you do these things. You, you, the one he uses a lot, it says, you speak in tongues. You think that makes you look spiritual. But I'd rather speak a few words of prophecy, which means intelligible words which glorify God, not because the gift of tongues doesn't exist, but because it's essentially a gift which only enriches the body, the person, and there has to be an interpretation for it to mean anything at all. So the Apostle Paul says, while this gift is there, I would rather you speak intelligible words because that builds the church. It is a more unselfish act. And this struggle is something that the church has been through ever since it's been formed. Again, you read the New Testament, there's actually names in there that Paul's like, these folks are out of step with each other, and they need to come back together. Utica and Schenectady. He talks about these two women, and he's like, these, these women were super helpful to me in the ministry. Help them get back together. He's writing to the church. Help them get back together. Help them to work this thing out, because they're both valuable to the kingdom of God. But Utica and Schenectady were like, they're going like this. They're fighting over something. Who knows what? We don't know what. But they were fighting over something. And it happens with men, too. There's Alexander the silversmith who does a great harm to the Apostle Paul. We don't really know what that is, but he had been part of the church, and he had turned against them. And this tendency to fall into our own self-centered worldview is why I believe Jesus modified this teaching. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think he modifies it because if you remember, and I've talked about this a lot before, he then says, for the law and the prophets are summed up in this way. But he gets together with his disciples the night before he's crucified. At least that's how John presents it. It seems like it's the night before he's crucified. And he says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. 
Now, if you've been here for a while, you know I refer to this verse a lot. There's probably, uh, probably if you've been here about three or four years, you know the top five verses that I keep coming back to over. And today, we've visited three of them, right? Three out of the top five that I tend to come back to over and over again because they're so essential to the core of what we're supposed to be. And this one is essential because Jesus, the new part of the command, and you could probably preach this part as well as I could now, some of you, the new part of the command isn't that we are to love one another. That's Old Testament. That's been there for a long, long time. The new part of the command is the measure by which we love. Whereas we used to love our neighbors as ourselves, it was focused on us because we didn't really have the Holy Spirit. So how could you measure love at all? Well, you kind of measure within yourself. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. It's a fairly good rule of thumb. Except in marriage, let me tell you, doing unto your spouse what you want them to do unto you is almost a disaster for marriage because the way men and women communicate are different. So this is a rule of thumb, but it's by no means a, a, you always do things this way. You know, Felipe's newly married over there. Let me tell you, man, if you approach your wife the same way you approach your male friends, you're going to be in trouble. And if you think that Felipe is going to approach spirituality and friendship and relationship the same way your girlfriends do, you're going to be disappointed. And it's the same with all the married folks too. Cindy and I go through this as well. We had to kind of figure out who we were. If I did unto Cindy, when she's sick, if I do unto her as I want unto me, she'll think I don't love her anymore. Because when she's sick, she wants to be taken care of. When I'm sick, I want to be left alone. So if she does unto me what she wants, she drives me completely nuts. In a, in a sweetest and most loving way. And if I do unto her what I, what I she feels like I've deserted her, you know. You know she, she's concerned about, you know, you know, if she was to become seriously ill, would I just like, you know, go hiking or something? So you got to be careful. You got to be careful from chasing rabbits too, because I'm definitely on a rabbit right now. But we have this ability. We have this, this ability to kind of go outside of ourselves and focus on our relationship with God and to live in this new way. And if we do that, if we live under the standard of Christ, love as I have loved you, not as you think of yourself, but as I have loved you, there's no wiggle room for hurting people who hurt others. There's no wiggle room for I feel bad about myself, so I'm going to treat you badly. It's how Christ treats us. It's how Christ loves us. And then we can say some things which seem a little bit cliche, we can say with a straight face, I love this person even though I don't particularly like them. Now, you have to be careful with that. That's right up there with saying, I have an anger, but it's a righteous anger. It's true, very, very rare. You know, it's true you can say, I love someone without really particularly enjoying their company. It's true. It's kind of rare, though. We have to be careful just falling back on some of these cliches. But we can because love transcends our feeling about the personal relationship. And this is what Christ did when he died on the cross. His love transcends his feelings. You know, as he looked on this crowd that was spitting on him and mocking him as he's being crucified, do you think the thing that ran through Christ's mind by human nature would be, oh, isn't that sweet? No, he transcends it through his love. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening verse to Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 22. It's right before the go through the valley of death psalm. So Psalm 22, that's how it begins. And if you read Psalm 22, I think you get a good insight as to what Jesus was thinking as he was on the cross. And it ends, Psalm 22 ends, his name will be proclaimed forever because it is finished. 
or it is over. And then he says on the cross, it is finished, and then he dies. His love transcended his feeling, his, his human sense of, am I being treated fairly? Is this just what is happening to me? Do these people deserve my life? Do they deserve my blood to flow? Do they deserve the torment of God himself being made flesh? What's the answer to that? No. We don't deserve it. Our Calvinist friends like to remind us, we don't deserve anything. The fact that anybody is saved is a grace of God. But he overcame it. And that's that same spirit of love that we are given. And we should be able to get over things like the, the minor disagreements that cause churches to fight and even split. I come from the Baptist tradition in the U.S. We make this joke. The church in the U.S., the Baptist church in the U.S. multiplies because of church splits. If it weren't for church splits, Baptist churches wouldn't multiply. And you've got First Baptist in some town, then you've got Second Baptist, and you've got Third Baptist. And if you go in their history, they used to all be one Baptist. And God can use anything to glorify him. So sometimes those three little churches will still grow and his word goes out even further. But it's funny that oftentimes we, among ourselves in the U.S. Baptists, we, we laugh about the fact, yeah, we, we have a lot of unhealthy growth, but God makes it into growth anyway. But you know what? There's going to be a day when we won't have any desire to cooperate with sin. And I have no idea what that's going to be like. Because I don't know what your life is like, but I go through times, I can kind of peaks and valleys. I go through times and I'm like, don't feel super tempted by very much. Things are going great. You know, I feel like God's like right here with me and right there. I can like shake hands with Jesus. And man, there are other days it feels like I'm a Grand Canyon apart. And the things that I want to do, I know aren't what God wants me to do. And even though I don't go down that road, there's still the internal struggle. I hate those days. I look forward to the rest in not having to fight with sin anymore. And Revelation tells us this. I like this. I like this description because it really talks about God's presence in our lives. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God is already with us in a sense, right? But he's going to be with us in a much more powerful sense. Just like we are already saved, we are already counted as righteous, but there will come a day when that is made much more manifest. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. Oops. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all this. And I'll be his God. And he will be my son. And that sonship is really talking about the place of inheritance. Again, you've probably heard this before. And women are equally inheritors of God. That's why Paul says over and over again 
There is in Christ no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He's not saying that there aren't gender differences. He's not saying that. He's saying the status before God, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you be a slave or whether you be free, whether you be a male or a female, all the things that society puts in place to kind of stratify society. He says, in Christ there's an equal inheritance and we will all be in that same place equally in the presence of God. Where there will be no more desire to sin, there will be no more desire to have any other than perfect, peaceful communion with God and with one another. And so with that in mind, the church is made up of people. And the church is actually kind of a foretaste of heaven. It's to be what it, it's like a little pre-taste of what heaven will be like, where we come together, we gather under one name, under one God, and we worship together. And I know that for many of us, when we hear that phrase, the church is a foretaste of heaven, a small feeling of disappointment goes through us. It's like, is that, a, oh my goodness, really? <laughs> I have to deal with this for all eternity? No. It's a foretaste. It's a, it'll be in its perfected form in heaven. But you know, there have been times, man, the church, and I've experienced it in every church I've been in, there are those moments where everything just kind of comes together. And it seems like there's a, there's a unity of, of everybody, heart, mind, soul. And in those points of unity with God, man, it's a beautiful thing. For me, IBCD, a couple, several years ago, we were having, uh, it, was our, it was our cultural Sunday. And afterward, we had this meal, and people were just like kind of randomly playing uh, music out on the, on the grass there from their own countries and stuff, and got together and sang, and, and people were just fellowshipping and hanging out. And man, I thought, this is as close as we can get on earth. It was beautiful. You know, just the just the sweetness of the fellowship in Christ. It was amazing. We get that sometimes. It's that foretaste. And communion, which is something that we kind of, I was reminded the other day that since we don't pass it out with corona, we've kind of lost some of the uh, time of reflection that is supposed to be done during communion as we pass things out. But communion is really this rem reminder of that unity the reminder of the sweetness of spirit we are to have with God and with one another. So you have your communion stuff with you. And if you uh, are here and you're not a member of IBCD, but you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ, we call it a, a confessed believer. It's like the little phrase we use here. You're welcome to participate in communion. Uh, you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be having been baptized here or anything like that. If you are a Confess, believer in Christ, you're, you are welcome to participate in communion. And what it is, what Jesus does when he gives us this gift, it's this, it's this unity we have at the same time with Christ and with one another. It's a unity with his suffering. It's a unity with his body and his blood. Obviously, that's the symbol. But it's a unity that we participate in together. And it's a powerful reminder of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That we walk together in this place of Christ's suffering, that he was willing to die upon the cross so that we can have this moment together. 
And so what I want us to do, I want us to take a little bit of the reflection time. And so I'm just going to take about, uh, I'm going to talk about the elements and then take about 30 seconds or so just to take some time to pray. If you're in broken relationship, that you need to forgive someone and just get, get it done with and move on with life. Or if you're in an area you need to repent of a, a place with God, sin with God, to take the time to do that, and then we'll, we'll take it together. So there will be a reflection moment. And uh, so when I talk about it, don't eat it right away. You'll know when I say it. You'll see me do it. You can just kind of follow along with that, okay? So the scripture tells us. Does everyone have one, by the way, that wants one? All right. If you don't, raise your hand. Yeah, go ahead and pop open your, your little bread thingy there so that we don't have that in the middle of the prayer. <laughs> So the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take and eat of it and do so in remembrance of me. Let's take some time to just pray silently uh, to, to re, uh, kind of review where you're at before God. And, uh, and then we'll go on with the next step of actually taking it. Jesus said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Take and eat of it, and as you do so, remember me. Then Jesus took the blood, uh, the cup, and said that this is the cup of the new covenant which has been poured out in my blood. Take and drink of it, and as you do so, remember me. Let's take some time to pray, and then reflect, and then we'll take it together. Jesus said that this is the cup of the new covenant. Covenants in the Old Testament were always sealed by sacrifice. And Christ is the final sacrifice once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Take and drink of this, and as you do so, remember me. And let's stand together. And we will recite the Our Father. Again, you are welcome to recite this in your mother tongue if you would like. Uh, 
I'm going to start us out, and then I'm going to turn off the microphone so that people can just kind of pray it as they, uh, as they would like, as, in a way that's is a reminder, again, of our unity, but of also our uniqueness as well. Our Father, which art in heaven.